Well, greetings to you. I hope you're doing well. We're in Judges. I think you, you know that by now. And uh, this tells it all. Judges is sadly about rebellion and gloriously about restoration. The rebellion of Israel and the restoration uh, provided graciously by Israel's God. But it's not just about Israel. It's about each of us, even individually. Uh, we have a heart, oftentimes, inclined in the direction of rebellion. And the issue is, what do we do about it? Well, Israel uh, was given an opportunity to respond to God's gracious restoration, and so are we even as believers. So that's what this marvelous book, Judges, is all about. It's a record of terrible cycles of rebellion and a cry for help to Almighty God, and then God's deliverance through, we call them judges, but they were really many saviors. For as long as they lived, they provide helps by God's grace to rebellious Israel. And then when they passed away, Israel stooped into sin and rebellion once again. That's kind of the text. Last week, we read about the son of one of the key judges in Israel. Remember, Gideon he was, and he bore a son whose name was Abimelech. And Abimelech was the son of Gideon through a concubine. So Abimelech's mother was never accorded the full status of marriage. She wasn't really considered to be his father's wife. She was exploited. And Abimelech, I uh, made the case, grew up, I think, with anger and bitterness, especially towards his 70 half-brothers. So Gideon had a slew of wives in order to produce that many kids. And though Abimelech was one of the kids, he always felt like the outsider because his mother was kind of damaged goods in the eyes of society. Where well, he grew up with tremendous anger and it eventually erupted. Gideon died. And then Abimelech decided he would like to be king of Israel. No consultation with God whatsoever. He thought it was the right thing to do. And we've mentioned that's one of the principal themes of Judges. It's given in the very last verse of the book, and it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I made the point, notice it doesn't say they did what was wrong. People actually were persuaded that their godless course of action was in fact the right thing because they were not informed at all by God's truth. It's no different than the day in which we live. People are so persuaded that the course of action they're taking with regard to Life and marriage and all the rest is right, though it be uninformed by God's word. So Abimelech thought it was the right thing to do for him to assert himself and become king. In order to do it, he hired uh, a group of really morally empty, godless individuals. They were paid thugs, and he arranged, Abimelech did, for them to kill to kill, it was premeditated murder, 69 of his 70 half-brothers. This took place all on one occasion. The 70th, the youngest, was someone named Jotham. He escaped. 
Well, it was a terrible time because though Abimelech was the king for three years, eventually those who um, subordinated themselves to him realized they made a terrible mistake and he wasn't a good leader at all. And so they rebelled against him. So you had civil war in Israel at this time. Abimelech's troops going against the other people was a terrible time. Not only that, the people... uh, by and large, turned their backs on their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they took on the worship of the gods of the land, Canaanite gods. So this was the situation in Israel, a time of cultural civil war and a a time of moral depravity and a time of idolatry. Well, in this scenario, now we see God graciously raised up the next little savior, the next deliverer, the next judge, and we could read about him in verse 1 of chapter 10 of Judges. So that's where we are now, Judges chapter 10, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, after Abimelech died, so after three years of subjugating the people, he died. Do you remember how he died? A woman from a tower dropped a piece of an upper millstone, a stone on his head, crushed his skull, and that's how he died. So after Abimelech died, look what happened. This fella, Tola is his name. Tola, the son of Pua. How do you like these names? Pua, who was the son of, look at this one, Dodo. Just today, my wife called me a dodo bird. She told me, and I reminded her that, that it's Reverend Dodo Bird to her. Have a little respect. So these are unusual names. So you have a guy, after Abimelech died, uh, God raised up someone named Tola. He's the son of Pua, who happened to be the son of Dodo. Who's he? He's a man of Issachar, one of the tribes of Israel. And what did he do? Well, this is what he did. He arose to save Israel. We don't know much about him, but that's the God-ordained function. Can you see why I'm saying these guys are actually little saviors? They really point to the ultimate savior, the Lord Jesus. So Tola rose up to save Israel, and he lived in this place called Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, these are rather unusual names. Uh, Tola's dad, Pua, it sounds weird, but it's actually a nice name. It means splendid. But for whatever reason, Pua did not... It, appears, did not assign a very splendid name to his son, Tola, because Tola means worm. That's what it means. So that's not, uh, uh, at least at first glance, a very complimentary name. But I did a little study, and the word worm, the actual word for worm here, is a reference to a particular a critter known as the Cocos illicis. That's Latin, Cocos illicis. And uh, uh, here's what it looks like. Uh, it's, it's this, it's rather beautiful. It doesn't look much like a worm. It actually is an insect. But I'll tell you what happens. The female of the species are born with legs. I know you came here for this, right? But it's, I'm leading to a point, just bear with me. The female of the species is born with legs, but then during pregnancy, um, the legs become 
unused and uh, of no value. And so um, the insect kind of then takes on the appearance of a worm. And so that's, that's why this insect is actually referred to as the Cocos illicis, a, a worm. Notice its beautiful crimson or scarlet color. It was quite significant in the ancient world because from it would come a dye, a scarlet or crimson dye, which was used in ancient times to give coloring for the fabrics in the tabernacle and temple, like the veil, some things on the priest's garments, curtains. It was very expensive and sought after. So, so that's what the tola worm actually looks like. Now here's something quite interesting. When the females are ready to give birth, here's what they do. These are two tola worms. They attach themselves to a tree, wood, and they do so permanently. They produce um, offspring here from this position underneath them so that they are protected. And then in childbirth, the mama tola worms die. And when the tola worm dies, see, once she affixes herself to the tree, that's it for her. She dies. And when she dies, in the course of producing offspring, she exudes a, a crimson or scarlet beautiful dye on her body and on the tree. And it's that dye that is extracted and used for other uh, purposes. So why am I taking all your time to talk about this? Well, um, in Psalm 22, we read about the Lord's sufferings. Now, you may be thinking, Psalm 22, wait a second. That was written hundreds of years before Jesus was here on earth. Yes, by anticipation of his sufferings, we read prophetically, predictively, we read Psalm 22. It's referred to as a messianic psalm because it really points to the coming suffering Messiah. And in Psalm 22, verse 6, these are the words of the Lord Jesus, but I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Now in saying he is a worm, he's essentially saying in appearance I'm a man, but really my purpose was to come as a worm. He's not only making reference to the degrading way in which he was treated in a subhuman way, he's actually implying the purpose for which I came was really to be a tola worm for you. You remember what the Lord Jesus did? He affixed himself through crucifixion to another tree, and there he died. And when he died, scarlet blood emanated from the piercings on his body and his scarlet blood is exactly what you and I needed to cover up for the scarlet nature of our sin. I say scarlet because there is a place in the Bible where the color of sin is described. It says in Isaiah, uh, 
though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It took the crimson, scarlet blood of the Lord Jesus to cover up for the scarlet nature of our sin. And when the Lord Jesus died, by faith he birthed offspring, protected by his death, burial, and crucifixion permanently. Can you see now that what appears to be a kind of insulting name given by a dad to his son was actually a high compliment? Tola, the worm, uh, the worm from whom would come crimson and scarlet blood ultimately who would bless people who believe. And so when the Lord said, but I am a worm, don't you see? He is saying, I am your Tola. I am the one who affixed myself permanently to a tree. And when I was pierced through, what effused from my body was my precious scarlet blood. And that's the solution for your scarlet sin problem. So this is Tola. And in fact, we're told, as you see, you see the phrase back in verse one, he came to save Israel from their sin. I think Tola is a foreshadowing of the ultimate Tola, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are told in verse two that this special judge, Tola, in fact judged Israel for 23 years and then he died. That's all we're told about him. We don't read about any dramatic military exploits at his hands. We don't read about any great deeds accomplished by him, only that he lived as judge in Israel for 23 years. But really, that's really saying something. Remember, he came on the scenes at a time of great moral uh, decline in Israel, a time of cultural civil war, a, a time of great instability. And it appears for 23 years, he was a great stabilizer in Israel. It appears that he came and provides stability when the nation had stooped into great ungodliness. Some do heroic, theatrical, dramatic uh, things during their administration or ministry, wonderful. But other faithful ministers are great stabilizing influences, helping people to stay in a godly direction, even in a time when the surrounding society is going in an ungodly direction. And so this is Tola. And then we're told in verse three, when Tola died, God raised up Still yet another mini-savior, another judge, and his name, we're told, is Jair. And we're told he served for 22 years. And this is what we're told about him in verse 4. Take a look. He had, this is what we're told, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead, and those cities are called Havaot Jair to this day. That's it. That's all we're told about this guy. Now, in order to have 30 sons, that means he must have had multiple wives. That's not good. A polygamy is never God's idea. 
at no time in biblical history nor today. His plan is one woman, irreversibly bound to one man, the two being joined together and thus making one new flesh. And so we find out something about this judge. We find out that he, he maybe had some sexual moral problems. And so he fathered these 30 sons. And what did they do? Well, they rode on these donkeys. Now, why is that significant? In that day in Israel, a donkey was a means of transportation, really, uh, popularly used by rich and wealthy people. This is the equivalent of saying that Jair's uh, sons rode in 30 BMWs. That's essentially what, what it, 30 Mercedes, whatever car you like. Uh, th that's what they did. And not only that, they had 30 cities. You know, you get the impression that their dad uh, um, spent his wealth and used his position to lavish upon his sons uh, materialistic things. That's what we, we get about this. You don't get the impression that Jair was really a faithful servant, nor that he imparted that to his kids. I suppose it's not too unusual because often Christ's servants seldom wish to be servants. This text has really reminded me that's who we are. We're called upon to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, not even one another if you think about it. The New Testament says we are bond slaves for Christ's sake. That can keep you serving, folks, even when you're underappreciated or when it gets tough. We actually don't serve for others' sake. We serve for the sake and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he's the premier example of service. Do you remember this verse? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, Jair didn't do so hot, I don't think, in this regard. And now we are told this. After Jair died, after his 22 years, this is what happened now in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. It's a terrible verse. Then, after this judge Jair died, this seems to be typical, then the sons of Israel, look at this terrible word, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, everyone was then doing what was right in his or her eyes without giving any concern about how God saw things. But their evil was, in fact, just that in the sight of the Lord. And they did it again. It's not the first time. Specifically, here's what they did. They served, notice this, the Baals and the Ashtarot. That is the principal male and female deity of the Canaanites. So the Israelites are in what was then called the land of Canaan, and it appears that they took on the gods of the land. Instead of talking to them about the true God, they were influenced by the false gods of the land. But notice how Israel's idolatry uh, uh, stooped to an all-time low. Notice how diverse their idolatry was. They didn't just worship the Canaanite gods. Look, also the gods of Aram, and that's up in, oh, near present-day Syria. And also the gods of Sidon, that would be in present-day 
Lebanon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the sons of Ammon, and those two people groups would be in present-day Jordan, on the east of the Jordan uh, River. And they also worshiped, notice, the gods of the Philistines. The Philistines were a seafaring people, perhaps from the Greek islands, and they settled on the west coast of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. And this is what they did. Notice the diversity of idolatry now in Israel. It appears that Israel, meant to be influencers of those around them, were influenced by the culture. They just caved in. And the the false gods of the land weren't enough. They even took on uh, the worship of foreign gods at this particular time. It was, they conformed themselves to the people of the land instead of being ones who influenced the people of the land. Listen, they were originally polytheists. Poly, you know what polytheism is? It's this, just to keep it simple. Polytheism is the belief in or worship of more than one God. That's what it is. Originally, the Israelites were polytheistic, but then by revelation, they found out there's only one God. So the polytheists became monotheists. They worship the one true God. And now what's happening is that the monotheists are going back under polytheism. And they were worshiping a pantheon of gods, not one, but many. Now, I want to tell you something. Polytheism, if you're entertaining the idea of subscribing to that ideology, it's very illogical. Think about it, if you will. You provide worship and sacrifice and uh, uh, prayers and offerings to a god. And then you do the same still yet to another god and another god. And uh, you're making a big mistake because by nature, the definition of God is that he has no rivals. But polytheism essentially says that there is no one true God. There are many and they kind of compete for your attention. By definition, this is, this is not the true God. Now, here's something else about polytheism. If there are many gods, it means that not a one of them is fully sovereign. Therefore, they can't be God because sovereignty is one of the attributes or characteristics of God. You're not sovereign. You're not in control of circumstances. Almighty God is. That's what distinguishes the creator from the creature. But if you have a multiplicity of gods, then they have to share sovereignty, which means no one in effect is, which means one of the gods can have a plan. And that God could want to assert his will, but it could be a contravened by one of the other gods, which means not a one of them is really God because not a one of them is sovereign. Now, if you're a polytheist, you can never be eternally secure. Never, never, never. Because if one of the God offers you eternal bliss, paradise, the other uh, God could nullify it. Can you see? It's not a good idea. You can never be assured of salvation in a polytheistic system. It's amazing to see how many of the world's population today are polytheists and these poor people can never be hopeful about their future because even if one of the gods is benevolent and makes good promises to them about eternity, it doesn't matter because one of the other gods who may be in a bad mood on a particular day could erase those promises. All that to say, 
I suggest you not be a polytheist. I, I would hope once you find the one true God, you stay with him and don't look for a better deal. There is none. Now look, this is a serious thing to go from monotheism, worship of the one true God, to polytheism, and God responds to it. And you can see God's response in the very next verse. Look, the anger of the Lord burned. You see this word? We know about anger, but a lot of us has, have problem uh, uh, associating this anger, look, of the Lord. I'll tell you why. We want to think of God as being loving. We accept that characteristic of God. God is love. But this idea that God even um, has the experience of anger, even wrath, oh, we don't like that. People don't like that at all. But I want to tell you, the Bible speaks as much of the anger of God as it does the love of God. In fact, I, I think I can show you that the love of God is what actually generates his anger. Listen, he entered into a covenant relationship with this peculiar people called the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because he entered into a covenant relationship, it's kind of like marriage. And then the Jews commit acts of spiritual harlotry. They were unfaithful. They took on false gods. Well, if God was indifferent to all that, if God wanted to share his people, he wouldn't affect them at all, but he doesn't. He's very offended. He's aroused with a very holy and sanctified jealousy, which manifests itself in anger and wrath. And so God's love for Israel is actually what generated his anger at this particular time. And so the text says, here's what he did. He sold them, his covenant people, into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of Ammon. Interesting. Philistines are on the west coast, Ammon on the east. They sandwiched Israel in between. And the text tells us in verse 8 that they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel, think about this, for 18 years. That's what it says. And then at the end of verse 9, we read, Israel was greatly distressed. And what did they do about it? Well, here's what it says in verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they cried out to the Lord. What do you mean then? After they had the experience of being greatly distressed, then they called upon the name of the Lord. Listen, if you belong to almighty God out of love, he may uh, allow you and me the experience and consequence of our sinful choices. Why? To destroy us and be through with us? On the contrary, to move us to confession and repentance. So for 18 years, he let Israel have the consequence of her idolatry. It worked. It moved her to this point. Hitherto, she'd been apathetic and indifferent, but now in her distress, I'm sorry, folks, that's what it takes, doesn't it? Sometimes affliction to really cause us to run to God with more passion and seriousness than ever before. They knew of God, but now they're really clinging to him for blessing because they're in such jeopardy. Then, after 18 years of distress, the sons of Israel cry out to the Lord. Here's what they say. We have sinned. 
And they get it right. We have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. Notice two things. They served the Baals. They confess that. And they also say we have forsaken our God. So I want to tell you about sin. Sin is not only serving a false God, uh, maybe uh, a substance, maybe a relationship. No, no, sin is not just that. Fundamentally, sin consists in you or I uh, turning our back on God. And that's the real problem. It's not drinking, it's not smoking, it's not sexual stuff, it's not gambling, it's not pornography, it's not this or that. Our fundamental sin is our interest in independence from God. We crave it. We love Jesus when we need him. We like the idea that he has forgiven our sin, but having to make do with him on a daily basis, kind of having to follow his lead, waiting on his permission for things, face it, you don't like it, I don't like it. You would rather be master of your destiny, so would I. It's called a quest for autonomy from God. Now that's the fundamental human sin. See, see, here's what we say. I'm unhappy now, but I know of a way whereby I can be happier. I don't want to wait to see if it's your will. I don't really want you to weigh in on it at all. Stick around, please, because I like you being my savior, but I don't really like you being my Lord and master. I have a way, I can taste it, it's so close to me. Through some action on my own, I don't have to pray, I don't have to fast, I don't have to wait, I don't have to consult scripture. It's right there within reach. He is, she is, it is. I can lay hold of it, and when I do, I feel happier than when I don't. That's called forsaking our God, you see. Don't focus on the Baals. That's not the real sin. The real sin is, so if you're looking to confess something, uh, the real sin is, oh God, I confess that I've turned my back on you as my sovereign provider and heavenly father. I've turned my back on you as heavenly husband and Lord, and I've taken matters into my own hand. I found a way to increase pleasure and decrease pain. Do you know how addicting that is? It works. If you find a way that increases pleasure and decreases pain, but it's really hard to break that, I'm telling you. It's kind of like an addiction. So if you're uh, bothered by that and on the verge of confessing something, uh, it's not the specific thing that you've done. That's just the symptom of the underlying problem. The underlying problem is, oh God, in my heart, I wish really to be independent of you. I would rather be enthroned uh, on the throne of my own life. I don't want to wait on you, depend on you. That's what has to be, well, that's what has to be confessed. So then beginning in verse 11, here's what the Lord does. He gives them a history lesson. He brings to their memory the fact that he delivered them from all kinds of uh, opposing people groups in their history. He reminds them that when they cried out to him, he delivered them from the hands of all those who would oppress and oppose them. He wants them to remember past deliverance. 
He wants them to remember he did not walk away from them. They did from him. That's why they're in the present mess they're in. He wants them to know he did not abandon them. They turned their back on him. That's what he does in those verses, verses 11 and on. And then he says in verse 13, you have forsaken me. And then he says in verse 14, go now, cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. This is not the activity of a harsh God who's through with his kids. This is the activity of a wise and loving heavenly father who wants to give us a chance to taste and see whether the false gods we have abandoned him for can really meet our needs. And God knows the only way we will be persuaded they can't is to give it a shot. And so he says, I know you're crying out to me, but you're loyal to these false gods. Let's see if they can hear from you. And here's what happens in verse 15. This is what Israel does. They say to the Lord, we have sinned. And they say, do to us whatever seems good to you. That's different. Because in this day, remember, everyone was doing what seemed good and right to themselves. But now, through 18 years of affliction, now they're ready to say, oh God, we fully surrender. Please do what seems good to you. We have sinned. You know, uh, that's based on uh, This reveals a theological term that's very unpopular with people. It's this one, confess. People don't like it. Can I take away some of the, I don't know, mystery of it? It means to agree with God. That's what confession means. Finally, Israel is agreeing. They're not making any excuses. They're saying we've sinned against you. That's what confession is. It's entering into agreement. I cannot say, oh, I had an abusive dad. I had an absentee mom. I never was breastfed as a kid. My dad didn't play Little League Baseball with me. I come from a socioeconomically deprived background. We can't do that. We have to say, oh, God, I have sinned against you. We have to say, I have done what was right in my own mind, but it turns out to be wrong. From your point of view, I've sinned against you. That's what confession is. This isn't just about Israel, maybe about someone here tonight, maybe me, maybe you. Listen, if you're a Christian but at odds with God, this is the first step in the direction of restoration. It's confession. Call it what it is. Today I heard on the news about someone who committed a horrific crime, and here's where her was her so-called confession. I'm a good person. I simply made a mistake. No, that that's not confession. See, that's not in agreement with God. You know what a mistake is? A mistake is when you're riding down the road and you should turn right, but instead you turn left. That's a mistake. It's not a mistake when you take a knife to someone and slit their throat which is what this person did. That's not a mistake. That is sin. That person is simply not confessing the sin. When you you 
euphemize it and call a transgression a mistake that's not yet confession. Finally, Israel gets to the point where she confesses. Uh, but it's not enough. That's just the first step towards restoration. Uh, let's talk about the second. It's revealed in this verse. So they, look what they did, put away the foreign gods. Uh, confession is talk. Talk is cheap unless it's backed up by action. So the second step in being restored to right fellowship with God, the first is a confession, but here is the second, uh, it's repentance. This is another word people don't like to hear anymore. To repent, again, it simply means to change direction. Remember, the fundamental sin is to move away from God. Repentance is simply to change direction and come back. Confession, I have sinned. To prove that I am sincerely uh, um, sorry for my sin, I change my direction. And so God requires both of us that we call it what it is and then turn from it. And then what is his response when we do. Let me back up to this uh, verse we just looked at uh, for this reason. They put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. Now, please notice this. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. I like to just stay with this. Chew on it. Feast on it. We're finding out something about the God of the Bible that is potentially life-changing. Uh, God did not forgive nor deliver Israel because she confessed or repented. He did so because his merciful heart could bear her misery no longer. That's why you have been forgiven Confession is important, so is repentance, but your forgiveness is not based on anything you've done. It's based on the Father heart of God who simply cannot bear any longer the misery you or I, one of his kids, are going through, even though the misery is due to our own sinful choices. I want to impress this upon you and me because this will invite us to more quickly get back into fellowship with God. Some of us out of pride will stay apart from God too long after we sin. Oh no, can you see the father heart of God? Israel did this again and again, but he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Folks, this is the God of the Bible. Don't turn him in for some false God in the form of a relationship that cannot meet your need. This is the one that can. And if you've turned from him, don't stay away a moment longer. Take him up on his own character as with Israel, so too with us. He could bear their misery no longer. Well, now here's what happened at the end. The sons of Ammon, Israel's enemies, got together. They're getting ready for war. And they camp at a place. And so too the sons of Israel, they have to prepare to defend themselves they gathered together as well. But verse 18 tells us this. Uh, 
Israel asks, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? They're a needy people, and now they have nobody to lead them. Tola has come and gone after 23 good years. Jair sustains stability as well of a sort for 22 years. He's gone now. Once again, when the little mini savior is gone, the rebellious kids are left alone again. They're about to be overwhelmed and assaulted by the Ammonites and there's nobody to make a defense for them. And all this suggests, I think, what is another major theme in this particular book, Judges, and it's this one with which we'll close. Judges is really about people awaiting God's perfect Savior. As good as were some of these judges, many saviors, they had a shelf life. They all were flawed, that's for sure, and they all died, that's for sure. Wouldn't it be great to have a savior not subject to death? Folks, we have one. His name is Jesus, who up from the grave arose. He removed the sting of death, he being resurrection and life. The only reason he died is that he subjected himself to it by becoming enfleshed. You see, God cannot die. So he took on the form of man, yet without his own sin, he bore ours. And then to prove he died, he was in fact buried. But uh, the tomb did not have the final word. It was, was left empty. And Jesus rose up from death, that, the resurrection, being his father's vindication of the acceptability of the work of the son. It was the father's way of saying, I accept your sacrifice for that one and that one and that one. Now come home. So after resurrection, Jesus ascended. He now is at the right hand of the father. That's the place of honor and privilege in my heavens. He's performing a valuable service for you and I uh, the Bible tells us he's interceding on our behalf. I'm so glad God gave us the book of Judges. It reveals human nature as Israel was, so too are we. We have this inclination to sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glorious perfection of Almighty God. And I need a judge and I need to deliver sent to me uh, not because of any good thing in me sent to me because God could bear my misery no longer. And so he did. He sent the ultimate deliverer, savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who because he is essentially God is not subject to death and therefore I, I don't have to go through life awaiting a perfect savior any longer. I could be imperfect, flawed and sinful and I can throw myself upon the mercy seat of this almighty God who lives forever to make intercession of those of us who put our faith in him. I beseech you in this day, it is a day of cultural civil war for us. Ideologically, we Americans are divided more than ever. The value systems, in my opinion, between light and darkness 
are coming to be in opposition to one another like never before. I've never seen it quite like this. We need, a, we need a savior. And even we Christians oftentimes, though we be monotheistic, are stacking up a multiplicity of gods. A god is any person or thing you lean on to meet needs. Even we Christians in our, in our distress are seeking to embrace the gods of the land. Nothing is different today than it was in the time of Judges. Tola won't do it, neither would Jair, but the ultimate Tola, uh, the Lamb of God who came as a worm and who produced the precious scarlet blood that is necessary to erase my sin, he's here with us, never to leave us or forsake us. Do you understand, Jesus, that Tola worm didn't just died to save us from sin. He died to save us from hopelessness and despair. He died to save us from polytheism, from dependence on false gods. In fact, he said, come to me. I know you're weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I let you try other sources of rest. It didn't work. And uh, I, I let you be in misery, but I could bear your misery no longer come to me. I'll welcome you with open arms. Admit what you've done is sin. Turn from it. You're going to have to make some hard decisions. And I, because of my heart of mercy for you, will restore you to fellowship just as if you had never sinned. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, who have found Jesus the ultimate Savior we need not look for a perfect savior anymore. Jesus has come once and for all. Lay hold on him as savior, as Lord, as partner, as heavenly husband, as the father, none, perfect father none of us have ever had, as the companion who will not let us go. I want to tell you, the worst of days with Jesus is better than the so-called best of days with the false God. Have you found that? I hope so. If so, do the right thing. Come back to Jesus. Oh, God in heaven, thank you so much for redeeming us to the uttermost. It wasn't a whimsical decision on your part. It was quite premeditated. You prepared for it. You prepared to suffer and die on a tree, just like a Tola worm. There you did it to produce offspring, to die for offspring, to shed the, your beautiful, precious scarlet blood over the scarlet sin of your offspring. Thank you, O oh God, that the covenant relationship means more to you than it does to us. And as with Israel, so too with us, you will not let us go. Thank you for allowing even painful times in our life, especially those painful times that are due to our own sinful choices. This is not to punish. It is to perfect. It is to discipline. It is to bring us back to you. And thank you. There comes a point when you can bear our misery no longer and you grant us restoration. I pray that might be the experience of every single 
Christian gathered in this place tonight. And for those who have yet to take you as personal savior, there's no good reason not to even tonight. I pray for that man or woman that you might grant repentance, a change of direction from independence to dependence on you as savior and Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.